0: Let us join our hearts together in prayer. Holy God and Heavenly Father, we call you Father, not because you are our creator, for you have also created the demons in hell, but we call you Father because you adopted us, because your only Son, Jesus Christ, taught us to pray to you, boldly calling on you as a loving Father, eager to provide for the needs of his children. On this Father's Day, we thank you for the fathers in our lives and we pray for all sorts of fathers facing all sorts of circumstances. We pray for fathers who strive to balance the demands of work and marriage and children. Give them an honest awareness of both the joys and the sacrifice. We pray for fathers who lacking a good role model, have worked to become good fathers. Grant that they may be the beginning of a godly legacy. We pray for fathers who, by their own account, have not always been there for their children, but who continue to offer those children now grown their love and support. We pray for fathers who have been wounded by the neglect and hostility of their own children, We ask for healing and restoration. We pray for fathers who, despite separation and divorce, have remained in their children's lives. We recognize that divorce is never part of your plan. And we ask that you bring victory even out of human failure. We give special thanks for fathers whose children are adopted whose love and healing support has been freely offered, and we ask that you bind them together with bonds that are stronger than blood. We also pray for stepfathers who freely choose the obligations of fatherhood, and we pray that love and respect might flower in those relationships. We pray for fathers who have lost a child to separation or to death, but who continue to cherish the child and ache for reunion. Grant that they should meet again, if not now, then in the resurrection. We pray for those men who have no children, but who cherish the next generation as if they were their own. Give them outlets for their godly nurture. We thank you for those men who have fathered us in their roles as mentors and guides, We ask a special blessing on those men who recently became or are about to become fathers. May they openly delight in their children. We pray for those who miss their fathers today. Grant that our grief at the loss of what we once had would be a sign to us of how greatly you favored us by giving us good fathers. Holy God and Heavenly Father, you have revealed Yourself to us as a Father, and so we recognize this role to be a godly one. We ask that You would grant all of us fathers, each in our several ways, a godly delight in our children, a godly tenderness for those in our care, a godly faithfulness to the duties You have given us, a godly love for the mothers of our children. We ask that you would make us more like yourself for the benefit of our children and for your glory. These things we pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 4 through 11. I realize I have the wrong translation on my pulpit, so let me get the right translation. Not that there's a right and a wrong one, but let's be on the same page. How about that? John 14, um, verses 4 through 11. I'm reading from the ESV version. This is Jesus speaking to Thomas. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, how long have... Believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Oops, that's far enough. All right, through 11. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. We pray this morning that you would show us your truth and lead us in your way and give us your life. This we pray in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. As educated 21st century Americans, we place a very high value on open-mindedness and diversity and respect for other religions and cultures and races. Part of the genius and the greatness of this country has been our willingness to welcome people from all over the world and to allow them to contribute to the dynamic stew of our culture. In a number of ways, the United States is similar to the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. Like the United States, the Roman Empire was powerful and wealthy. It covered a large territory. It was made up of people from all over the world. And so this morning as people who place a high value on open-mindedness and diversity and respect for other religions and cultures and races, we have to ask, what sense can we make of the exclusive claims of Jesus? His claim that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. How do we square... The broad-mindedness of our pluralistic society with the exclusive claims of Christianity. This morning, we're going to wrestle with this question from several different angles. I will attack it textually, historically, philosophically, theologically, and then finally, personally. And I'm going to try to do that in 22 minutes, so hold on. (laughs) Let's start with the text. As Reformed Christians, Scripture is where we begin. We receive Scripture as the Word of God, and my job as the preacher is to understand and to explain what the Scriptures say. Here at HVPC, we preach straight through whole books of the Bible at a time. Since the beginning of January, we've been working on the Gospel of John, and this week we find ourselves at this particular place in John chapter 14. And chose the reading from Isaiah 45 to supplement the John reading because it picks up on the same theme of the exclusive claims of our faith. So let's begin with the text of the Gospel of John. It's just a matter of hours before Jesus is going to be arrested and tried and executed. Jesus knows that his end is near and he is giving his disciples some final words of encouragement before his own crucifixion. In verse 6 we read, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are two features of this verse that make it a statement of exclusive claims. First, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. Jesus doesn't present himself as one option among many. If he wanted to say that he was one option among many, Jesus could have either used an indefinite article, a or an, or he could have omitted the article altogether. But instead, Jesus uses the definite article, the, and signals clearly, unambiguously, and three times that there is no other way, no other truth, and no other life. He is it, exclusively, The second sentence of verse 6, Jesus says, No one comes to the Father except through me. Father is Jesus' name for God. And so Jesus is saying, No one comes to God except through me. He isn't saying, I am one of the ways to get to God. He isn't saying, There are several ways to get to God, and my way is pretty good. Jesus is saying, unambiguously, If you want to get to God, you're going to have to go through me. From... A textual point of view, Jesus makes a clear and repeated claim that he is uniquely and to the exclusion of all others, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will get to God who does not go through him. That's an exclusive claim. Now, whether or not we agree with what Jesus is saying is another question. But textually speaking, that is what Jesus says. We see a similar exclusive claim in the Isaiah passage. In this oracle, God is speaking to Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor, and he says to him, I am Yahweh, there is no other God beside me. Two things to note in the Hebrew text. First, the text uses the proper name of God, Yahweh, as opposed to one of the many titles for God, such as the Lord or Almighty God. There is a difference. My proper name is Dan. A few of my titles are pastor and reverend and papa. There is something different in saying I am Dan and in saying I am the pastor. One is personal and the other is positional. In the Isaiah passage, God speaks personally. I am Yahweh, point number one. And point number two, in the Hebrew text, God doubles up the negatives translated literally what he says is i am yahweh there is no one else but me there is none beside me who is god or to put it, put it in the vernacular i am yahweh and there ain't nobody no one no way no how ever going to be god beside me that's an exclusive claim now whether or not we agree with what yahweh says is another question But textually speaking, the matter is very clear. Let's shift gears now and talk about the question historically. Could it be that the exclusive claims of Yahweh and Jesus are historically conditioned? That they're a product of a particular time and a particular place and would not have been made in a more enlightened time? We live in a time and a place where meeting people of different religions and cultures and races is common. It's hardly exotic these days to know a buddhist or a muslim or a jew we live in a highly mobile and open society we have all met people from asia and africa and south america and europe but that's not always been the case in all parts of the world at all times i grew up in the 1970s in neosho missouri a small town at the edge of the ozark mountains In that town of 8,000 people, there was one non-Christian family. They were Sikhs. They were from northern India. The father was a physician, and one of the children was in school a few years ahead of me. I knew of them, but had never actually met them. In that stretch of the Bible Belt, where I grew up in the 1970s, Episcopalians were considered exotic. But... Visit that town today, and the situation has entirely changed. Multiculturalism has reached even small-town America. So, what about the people to whom Isaiah and the Gospel of John were addressed? Would the claims of Yahweh to be the only God have seemed normal at that time? Would the claims of Jesus to be the only way to God have seemed to be normal at that time? The oracle in Isaiah 45 is addressed to Cyrus the Great, the ruler of the entire known civilized world at that time. His dominion stretched from India to Europe. And within the territory he ruled were hundreds of religions and thousands of gods. Like the later Roman Empire, Cyrus tolerated all local religions in the territories he conquered. So would Yahweh's claim to be the only god have sounded normal in the ears of Cyrus. Not at all. It would have been very strange. In our reading from the Gospel of John, Jesus tells the disciples that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, that he alone is the way to God. Jesus is speaking to Jews living in the Roman Empire. That empire is filled with religions and filled with gods. Even the emperor claimed to be a god. On top of that religious variety, there was also great cultural and linguistic diversity, both within the Jewish community and also within the broader non-Jewish world. We know this from the account of the day of Pentecost, when the followers of Jesus began to preach in the streets of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, we read this account. Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. The disciples of Jesus were living in a wildly diverse non-Jewish world ruled by an empire that stretched from India to Spain and even within the more restricted Jewish community there was a tremendous diversity of people from all over the world speaking different languages and certainly entertaining different uh, customs and perhaps different religious practices. It is to these people People aware of other religions and cultures that Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus had preached in Neosho, Missouri in the 1970s, you might have laid his exclusive claim to the fact that he was in a place and a time that had no first-hand exposure to other alternatives. You might have attributed his exclusive claims to his isolation and to his personal narrowness, but you can't say that of Jesus of Nazareth living in a Roman province during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. It, and it is impossible to attribute the exclusive claims that we find in Isaiah to cultural isolation, particularly as they are addressed to a non-Jewish emperor. So let's look at this philosophically. And by philosophy I mean the study of the nature causes, and principles of reality, knowledge, and values based on logical reasoning alone as opposed to empirical observation. Philosophers don't go out and measure things, but they do think about them really hard. And they think really hard about them because they want to dig down to the most basic ideas, to the ideas that we call axioms. Our readings this morning present two axioms. Isaiah tells us that there is only one God axiom number one and john tells us that jesus is the only way to god axiom number two these are axioms of the christian faith they are among the most basic truths of christianity axioms are basic truths that are understood to be self-evident incapable of being proven but themselves are the grounds of proving other things for example One axiom that you might believe is that what you see with your eyes while you are awake and not drunk, that those things are real. This morning, you are awake, you are not drunk, your eyes are open, and you're looking this way and you see me standing in front of you and because you see me, you believe that I am here, that I am real. Now, you don't prove that foundational axiom that what your eyes see is real. You don't prove it For two reasons. One, because you're sane and you don't even think that it needs to be proven. It's so self-evident that only a perverse mind would try to prove it. And two, even if you did want to prove it, as philosophers try to do, you couldn't. There is actually no way to prove an axiom. That's the nature of an axiom. We believe them because they're self-evident. And while we can use them to prove other things, they themselves cannot be proven. There is only one God. Jesus is the only way to God. These are two axioms of the Christian faith. They are where we begin. From these two axioms, we then use reason to draw other conclusions. We argue from axioms, but we don't argue to axioms. And lest you worry that it is irrational or unscientific to believe anything without proof, let me assure you that all systems of thought, including all of the natural sciences and all of mathematics, begin with axioms. No matter what system of thought we are operating in, there are certain basic principles that are the starting point, but themselves are not proven. Now let's talk about this theologically. First, the exclusive claim of Yahweh. Judaism begins with God speaking to Abraham. And it reaches a kind of maturity with the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. During the long history of the Israelite people, they have always lived surrounded by people who believed in many other gods. But the most fundamental axiom of their faith has always been captured in what is known as the Shema, which we find in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That one sentence sums up the Israelite faith in a world full of gods. The faith of Abraham and his descendants has always been an exclusive faith. Second, the exclusive claim of Jesus. Jesus was born into the world of Judaism. But Christianity begins with the revelation that Jesus is the incarnation of God. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's Thomas curiously, doubting Thomas, who first seems to grasp the full divinity of Jesus, and he's the one who sticks his finger into the still open wound in the side of Jesus, and he exclaims, my Lord, my God. Understanding how Yahweh is God and Jesus is also God, of course, is mysterious. And it caused a 400-year conversation in the church before the church was convinced that it had properly understood these things and encapsulated that understanding in the Chalcedonian Creed of 451 A.D. Like Jews, Christians are monotheists. We believe there is only one God. But unlike Jews, Christians are Trinitarian. We believe that God is and always has been a communion of three individuals, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we hear... Christians, When we Christians hear Jesus tell us that he's the only way to the Father, it comes as no surprise to us as because we're Trinitarians, because we believe that Jesus is God, and so God is the way, the truth, and the life. God is the way to God. Nothing surprising in that. Jesus is the incarnation of God. Jesus is God made flesh. Jesus is the means by which the triune God chooses to establish a relationship with humankind. So the Christian doctrine of the Trinity makes the exclusive claims of Jesus not surprising. The Christian doctrine of the atonement also makes the exclusive claims of Jesus unavoidable. As Christians, we believe that sin separates us from God that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the only possible approach to God is through the atonement for and the forgiveness of human sins that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. We cannot approach God because of our sin, but the death of Christ opens a way for us. So the only way to the Father, to God, is through Christ, who provided the atonement that makes possible any approach to the Father. Now let me clarify one thing here. When Jesus says that there is no way to the Father but through him, he is not saying that it is impossible for us to know about God in any other way. In fact, the Bible is very clear that we can know about God in other ways by means of natural reason. Um, Psalm 19, King David, we hear sing, the heavens declare the glory of the God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen. People naturally believe in God. And from all times, in all cultures, people have always believed in God. Non-belief in God is the unusual and the exceptional case. Okay. Running out of time. Let me wrap up with some observations from a personal point of view. God in his providence has allowed me to be a twice born again Christian and a former atheist. I was raised in a Christian home and I made a personal profession of faith in Jesus in the fourth grade. In college and in graduate school that simple faith was dismantled. Piece by piece, as I studied philosophy and theology in an environment that was extremely hostile to any kind of orthodox faith. And then, somehow, in a way that I I cannot fully explain, God grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and began to do a number on me. I began to doubt my doubts. I began to be skeptical about my skepticism. I began to see the power and the coherence and the beauty of the gospel and the lights began to go on for me. I didn't return to the faith of a fourth grader. We can never go back. But God has given me a life-changing faith. Not only do I believe with my head, but I also find that my values and my attitudes and my behavior has changed. I am a sinner, of course, but now I'm a sinner who's been captured By the gravitational pull of a massive star. And I orbit in its eternal light. And never again will I go wandering in the dark wastes of empty space. In Acts chapter 4 we have the account of Peter being hauled before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. Peter had healed a crippled man. And the court wanted to know in whose name and by what authority he had performed this miracle. Peter says to them, Rulers and elders of my people, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given unto mankind by which we must be saved. That's an exclusive claim. It's as exclusive as the claim that Yahweh makes for himself when he speaks to Cyrus. It's as exclusive as the claim that Jesus makes when he speaks to his disciples. All through the history of the church, the church has always proclaimed the same message, the same exclusive message. There is one God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through him. So, why would anyone... Believe that. In our pluralistic times, why would anyone embrace an exclusive faith? As educated, open-minded people, why would we ever say Jesus is the only way? Honestly, at this point, we need to admit and embrace a great mystery. If you have faith, that faith has been given to you by God. And you can no more deny that faith than you can deny that there's a sun in the sky. I can't explain it. You'd be a fool to try. But the Bible repeatedly makes it clear that faith in God is a gift from God. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is speaking with his disciples, asking them who they think he is. And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus answers and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. It wasn't revealed to you by human means, but by my Father in heaven. Why do we believe? Because when God reveals himself to us, we can't not believe. Now let me make one final cautionary comment. Having an exclusive Theology does not mean we should have small-minded or exclusionary politics or social policy. Christians should not be bigots. And we need to see that the separation of church and state is for the good of the church. We should also thank God for the wild and crazy mix of people we have in our vibrant culture. If for no other reason, then that means that the mission field is always at our front door. The people of God, Jews and Christians, have always lived surrounded by many religions and many gods. This should not alarm us. And the people of God, Jews and Christians, should not be shy about holding fast to the most fundamental axioms of their faith. That there is only one God. Or that Jesus is the Savior of all the world. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, you have shown yourself to us in ways that we cannot explain. You have overwhelmed us and found us where we lived and where we were hiding. And so we just turn to you in response to you reaching out to us and we, we worship you and we honor you and we bless your name. We thank you for the company of saints who are gathered here this morning and we pray that our worship of you would be pleasing in your ear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.